Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you so much for joining me today, y'all. I do love to bring a magical place into our investigation. We have talked about the Garden of Allah and the Beverly Hills Hotel. We've talked about Hever Castle. So many locations in the background of Done and Done, but holy cats, pack your bags, friends. This week is Sesibon. It's so good. We're going to take a little voyage this week out of the United States, out of England, into the south of France, where literally everything connects. There is a magical place on the French Riviera called the Chateau de la Horizon, the Castle of the Horizon, that will bring together so many of our players, as well as introduce a few new ones too. We're about to have some fun, but before we begin today's episode, I do have this magnificent shiny spyglass with some big shout-outs and thanks to give. First and foremost, to our newest supporters over at patreon.com slash doneanddone, Katrina D., Finchie, and Kelsey J. Holy cats, I can't tell you how grateful I am for you. Maddie O., thank you, thank you for your delightful box of surprises. You really made my day. Big love to you and the love from down under. Harriet B., I saw your really kind review for Done and Done. Thank you so much for that. Investigators, you're just simply the best. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. Thank you, thank you. In her book called The Riviera Set, author and biographer Mary Lovell says of the Chateau de la Horizon, it was the beautifully proportioned, exquisite Art Deco villa that was the stylish brainchild of American actress society hostess, possibly royal mistress, and certainly hugely successful investor Maxine Elliott. But Maxine is only one of the legends that float in and out of this magical place. Let's investigate. In order to understand the significance of the Chateau de la Horizon, we need to understand the significance of its owner, Maxine Elliott. Elliott was a remarkable woman that might not be familiar to you, but let me assure you, Maxine was a legend. She plays a pivotal role in the French Riviera social scene. She's a trusted confidant of important people and makes herself into a very wealthy woman in the process. Maxine Elliott will buy a plot of seaside land on the French Riviera in 1930 and sets about designing and building her dream home. She will call it Chateau de la Horizon, and this will become a gathering point for world-famous celebrities, politicians, and wealthy socialites. It was only a few years earlier when the very famous and infamous Sarah and Gerald Murphy made the French Riviera fashionable as a summer holiday location. Prior to 1926, when the Murphys brought their menagerie of creative friends to the area, the French Riviera was really only used as a winter resort for British and Russian royalty, aristocracy. It was not thought to be an ideal summer destination because it was so hot. 
This week's Not Done Yet over on Patreon investigated all about the hotel to cap and Gerald and Sarah Murphy. There's so much packed into that tale, it seemed fitting to spin that off into a Patreon bonus. Today, though, we're here for Maxine Elliott, who is kind of on the fringes of the Murphy set. Maxine was smart and shrewd, and once she realizes that the secret of the French Riviera was out, and it is going to become a haven for the rich and famous of the world, Maxine wants in. For the moment, 1930, the stunning beaches were basically empty, and many of the opulent homes and hotels that would soon fill the coastline had not yet been built. Maxine Elliott bought her property while it was still relatively inexpensive, and this investment will pay off in multiple ways. Maxine Elliott, because of this, will live at the center of power, luxury, society. It will also be the reason that Maxine Elliott dies a very wealthy woman. So let us answer the question then, who was Maxine Elliott? Maxine Elliott was born Jessica Dermott in Maine on February the 5th, 1868. And Maxine growing up is determined to become an actress much to her family's dismay. At the age of 21, Maxine is going to head to New York City and enroll in drama school. And along the way in her acting training, Jessica Dermott becomes Maxine Elliott. Aquarius girl doesn't take too long for Maxine to become a star. She's beautiful, she's talented, she's determined. Maxine actually is a particular hit in London, while popular and respected for her work on the stage in the United States, actors were not really considered appropriate friends for the American upper-class families like the Vanderbilts and the Astors. However, in England, respected actors were revered. Famous stage actors and actresses were welcomed into society circles. Queen Victoria was even known to bestow knighthood and damehood on the most esteemed within the acting profession. Monarchs since Queen Victoria have continued this particular custom. While performing in London, King Edward VII, <laughs> birdie strikes again, was quite taken with Maxine and asked to meet her. No big surprise about what perhaps comes next, the two do begin an affair. Maxine is also courted by William Montague, the ninth Duke of Manchester and son of Consuelo Isnaga. Old Bertie, magnanimous guy that he is, wants to assimilate Maxine Elliott, his new lover, into his circle, and he assigns the task of bridging the gap for Maxine to his good friend, George Keppel. George Keppel is, of course, the husband of Alice Keppel, the longtime mistress and love of King Edward. Alice Keppel is also the great-grandmother of Queen Camilla, consort to King Charles III. Wouldn't you know, George Keppel, though, and Maxine Elliott become lovers. It was through the Keppels that Maxine would make the connections that would become so important and integral to her for the rest of her life. During this time, Maxine would become acquainted with and accept invitations from Mrs. Cornwallis West, this is Jenny Jerome Churchill, Lady Carnarvon of Highclere Castle, Lady Daisy Warwick, the Paget sisters 
Lord Sandwich, the Duke of Rutland, Alfred de Rothschild, and Sir Ernest Cassell. Maxine does become close friends with Winston Churchill, who would take her to tea at the House of Commons. They also rather enjoyed playing golf together. Another one of Maxine's best friends was Elsie DeWolf, interior designer to the rich and powerful. Who did Elsie DeWolf design for? The Windsors, the Vanderbilts, the Fricks, the Morgans, Oscar Wilde, George Bernard Shaw. It's just the top list. Lots of people Elsie played with. Elsie DeWolf was married to Sir Charles Mendel, a British actor, diplomat, and press attaché in Paris. Elsie's husband, Sir Charles Mendel, had been educated at the Harrow School, along with many wealthy English aristocratic sons. In 1924, Sir Charles was bestowed a knighthood for services to the crown. These services to the crown sounds kind of fancy, but really it was retrieving letters being used by a gigolo to blackmail Prince George, Duke of Kent. Maxine Elliot, though, knows she kind of wants to be overseas, but before she's ready to leave the United States and her career entirely, she still had a few professional aspirations. Maxine Elliott had a few short-lived marriages in the late 1800s, but it was her relationship with financier J.P. Morgan that may have changed the direction of her life more than any other. The two were close friends and most likely lovers. More importantly, though, J.P. Morgan gives Maxine a lot of valuable financial and investment advice. Maxine, for her part, is smart enough to listen to J.P. Morgan and it may have been one of the primary reasons she becomes a very wealthy woman. She'll open her own Broadway theater, Maxine Elliott's Theater, at 109 West 39th Street in 1908. She was advised to name it the Maxine Elliott Theater, but Maxine insisted on Maxine Elliott's Theater because she wanted the name to be clear that the theater was owned and managed by her, not just named in honor of her. The concept of a woman running her own theater at this time was basically unheard of. As impressive as that was, Maxine's acting and theater career is not anywhere near as interesting as her life on the French Riviera. Once she had built her Chateau de la Horizon, Maxine would entertain celebrities, politicians, and royalty. After King Edward VII dies, The social scene in London and throughout English aristocratic circles drastically changes. King George V was the complete polar opposite of his father when it came to his personal life. So the popularity and acceptance of raucous parties and country party weekends and country house weekends were ending abruptly. King George V and Queen Mary were very formal, very imperious. King George V and Queen Mary were far more Victorian than Edwardian, and society is going to need to make some adjustments. London and the English country homes were no longer the ideal scene for upper classes to enjoy themselves with, with quite the same abandon that was encouraged during Bertie's lifetime. The parties didn't stop, y'all. They just changed locations. Maxine Chateau was completed in 1932 and immediately 
becomes the setting for lavish and decadent parties and house guests. King George V died in 1936, ushering a whole new regime and international scandal of King Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson, who would become some of Maxine's most frequent and esteemed guests. Between World War I and World War II, Maxine Elliott would be the most sought-after hostess on the Riviera, and her list of visitors and friends reads like a who's who of the rich, famous, and powerful. Some of her first and most frequent guests at the Chateau were Cecil Beaton, Doris Castle Ross, Beatrice Guinness, Kimmy Mosley and her sister, Irene Curzon. Kimmy Mosley, pregnant at the time, actually learned of her husband's latest affair, this time with Diana Mitford, while staying at the Chateau with Maxine. With many of Maxine's friends either now dead or dying, she becomes kind of a den mother to a younger generation of aristocrats and royalty. Maxine was no less in demand as a hostess and confidant, but her role does shift from young, beautiful actress and mistress to austere, wise mentor and friend. Winston Churchill, oftentimes with his wife Clementine and their children, were frequent visitors to the chateau. Winston would often return to the chateau when he needed a little break from his political ups and downs. It is also where Winston, allegedly, engaged in his only extramarital affair with Lady Doris Castle Ross. Clementine does not enjoy the French Riviera in quite the same way that her husband does and will eventually grow to disapprove of both Maxine Elliott and her chateau. This perhaps might have been in part due to the activities of their son Randolph, but Clementine also didn't like how her husband behaved there either. In fact, Clementine Churchill once said that the French Riviera, quote, epitomized the shallowest side, unquote, of her husband's nature. The Churchill son, Randolph, spends a great deal of time at the chateau as well. And Randolph, y'all, was kind of a directionless young man, indulging in all of what his family name and status provided for him. And the French Riviera... Write Randolph a ticket. This is the ideal playground for him. Other visitors to the chateau included Prime Minister David Lord George, Pablo Picasso, the Aga Khan, Deborah Mitford, Duchess of Devonshire, Clark Gable, George Bernard Shaw, Ah, Fruity Metcalf, Consuelo Vanderbilt, Duchess of Marlborough. The list goes on and on. Some of Maxine's most frequent female guests are a trio known in high society as the Three Ds, Lady Diana Cooper, Lady Doris Castleross, and Daisy Fellows. Holy cats, friends. These are some amazing stories. Let's begin with Lady Doris Castleross. Lady Doris considered to be one of the greatest beauties of her time. Her legs were said to be as famous as Marlena Dietrich's and Betty Grable's. Doris was outrageous. She was shameless in her behavior and enjoyed, really enjoyed, making scenes in public places. Once referred to as, quote, an enchantress with a jester's cap of pure gold hair, unquote. Doris starts off as a model in London 
and declares at this time that she's going to marry a lord, which she eventually did. Doris will marry Viscount Castle Ross Valentine Brown, the fifth Earl of Kenmare in 1928. If you've been a longtime listener of Dun and Dun, there is a fun Dun and Dun tie-in here. We have talked about Lady Enid Kenmore, also known as Lady Kilmore, back in a very early episode through her marriage to Valentine Brown, perhaps just one of the husbands she killed, hence the name Lady Kilmore. Lady Doris and Enid do share the same husband, Valentine, but we're here with Doris now. Before Doris married, she was pampered by a series of wealthy men in exchange for her company. One of these men was American millionaire Stephen Sanford, known as Laddie. He is heir to the Bigelow Sanford Carpet Company, and he's also an American polo champion. Sanford at the time was married to American actress Mary Duncan, whom he was introduced to at a polo match by Marion Davies, longtime mistress to William Randolph Hearst. Laddie Sanford sets Doris up in a nice house in Mayfair. He gives her a Rolls Royce, also a number of lavish and expensive jewels. This romance only lasts until Laddie falls into bed with Edwina Mountbatten, Countess of Burma. Edwina Mountbatten, y'all, totally outrageous story, not one for today, but Edwina was married to Louis Mountbatten, uncle to Prince Philip. Prince Philip, as we know, was the consort of Queen Elizabeth II, Prince Philip also the father of current King Charles III. With the affair with Laddie over, what is Doris to do? It's going to be Viscount Castle Ross. He's going to have to do, but oh my, at what a cost. Viscount Castle Ross was vastly overweight. He's boisterous. He's eccentric. And although he is an English lord, (laughs) Viscount Castle Ross is also a leading gossip society columnist for Lord Beaverbrook's newspapers. He was made popular among the British people for making fun of the pomp and circumstance, the hypocrisy of high society. (laughs) You'd think maybe marriage would settle Doris down, but marriage will not discourage Doris from using sex to get what she wants from men. Her blatant promiscuity was pretty much a constant. One of her first lovers after her marriage was with Tom Mitford, the only brother of the very famous Mitford sisters. But as soon as Doris realized that he was actually not a very wealthy man, Doris is going to move along. Her next steamy affair was with Randolph Churchill Jr., whom she nicknamed Fuzzy Wuzzy. How's that for a nickname for you? Much of that affair does take place at Maxine's Chateau. Doris and her Viscount husband fight constantly. Once the Viscount had to have his leg bandaged after Doris bit him ferociously during a fight. Now don't be fooled, Viscount Castle Ross is not faithful either, but he even becomes embarrassed by how public Lady Doris's infidelities were. Oh, so much dish here, y'all. Apparently, among her other lovers, it's going to be a little hard to believe, were Sir Cecil Beaton, whose affair with Doris Castle Ross was his first heterosexual experience. 
Doris also had a lesbian affair with the wealthy American Margot Hoffman. At Chateau de la Horizon, Doris also allegedly embarked on an affair with Winston Churchill, father of her former lover, Randolph. Although Winston Churchill was far more faithful than most husbands of that time, his longtime aide and private secretary, Jock Colville, confirmed the affair. Colville said in 1985 that Churchill, quote, did one terrible thing, unquote. Jock Colville adds, he wasn't highly sexed and I don't think he slipped up except once, an affair with Doris Castle Ross. This was described to interviewers that Churchill had an affair, quote, this is so romantic, by moonlight in the south of France, unquote. Doris Castle Ross, y'all, one of her more famous quotes is, there is no such thing as an impotent man, just an incompetent woman. One of Doris's reported allures for men was a technique she had apparently mastered called Cleopatra's Grip. Cleopatra's Grip was a specialty which Doris uses often to the immense satisfaction of her wide array of lovers. She even once used the Cleopatra's Grip to good effect on a man she was trying to cure of his homosexuality. Doris does have a difficult time adjusting to the societal changes during World War II. Aging and no longer socially in demand, Doris Castle Ross overdoses on sleeping pills at the Dorchester Hotel in London and dies at the very early age of 42. Doris Castle Ross also, in current day, has two pretty famous grandnieces that may be familiar to you, in today's spider webs of connections, those are Poppy and Kara Delavine. Goodness, Doris is really memorable. Let's go ahead and get to the second of our D's, Daisy Fellows. Daisy Fellows, what a fascinating story. She is one of the heiresses to the Singer sewing machine fortune. Her maternal grandfather is Isaac Singer, who is something all on his own. So many kids, really without that many wives. Daisy Fellows is his granddaughter, mostly raised by her aunt, Winnoretta Singer. Winnoretta Singer is Isaac Singer's 20th out of 24 children. Winnoretta Singer was also known as Princess Edmund de Polignac. Oh, and this is just where the spider webs and the connection get me to Paris anytime from 1900 to the 1920s. Winnoretta Singer has a romantic relationship with painter Romaine Brooks. This begins in 1905. This effectively ends Winnoretta's affair with Olga de Meyer, who was married at that time, and whose godfather and purported biological father was, birdie strikes again, King Edward VII. Daisy Fellows, for her part, a generation on, was an accomplished writer and eventually an editor at Harper's Bazaar. Her first marriage was to a French prince, and her second marriage was to Reggie Fellows, a wealthy aristocratic British banker and cousin of Winston Churchill. Reggie Fellows was also a former lover of Consuelo Vanderbilt, Duchess of Marlborough. Daisy, very much unlike Doris, who used sex in exchange for money or power or gifts, Daisy didn't need to do that. 
Daisy Fellows was already incredibly wealthy and powerful. It is speculated that Daisy's lovers numbered in the hundreds, and her obsessive sexual needs are often attributed to straight-up nymphomania. Daisy has kind of a routine. She likes to smoke opium and sniff cocaine prior to having sex in order to relieve herself of any inhibition she may have that would hinder her full enjoyment of whatever that sexual experience was going to be. Daisy Fellows once invited Winston Churchill back to her room after dinner in order for Winston to see her little child. Winston Churchill, having a four-year-old daughter at the time himself, agreed to come and meet Daisy's daughter, her child. But when Winston arrives, this little child was actually Daisy, lying completely nude on a tiger skin. Winston was apparently very amused, but declined the invitation. Daisy Fellow is pretty scandalous. We have one more D to get to. Oh my, Lady Diana Cooper. Lady Diana and her connections, friends. Lady Diana Cooper was the Edwardian it girl. She was an inspiration for novelists Evelyn Waugh and Nancy Mitford. Lady Diana Cooper was called the most beautiful girl in the world and was the most popular debutante of her day. Cecil Beaton likened Lady Diana to Helen of Troy and Cleopatra. Lady Diana was the daughter of the Duke and Duchess of Rutland. A marriage between her and Prince Edward, this would be Edward VIII, was under consideration for a time, but Diana finds future Eddie VIII dull and much prefers her group of friends referred to as the Coterie. This is an intellectual and artistic group of aristocrats who she found far more interesting. On a Not Done Yet episode on Patreon not too long ago, we did a deep dive into the Coterie, the high society group that came before them, the Souls, as well as the group that comes after the Coterie, the Bright Young People. Lady Diana is all in that set. Lady Diana will not marry Bertie Prince of Wales. She will marry instead diplomat Duff Cooper. The Coopers were a popular and powerful society couple. Lady Diana Cooper was very important to the social scene during her time, but unlike the other two Ds, Lady Diana is mostly discreet about her affairs. On the opposite side of that, her husband, Duff Cooper, was not discreet at all. Lady Diana knows of her husband's many, many affairs, but claimed not to care because she knew that he was devoted to her and loved her only. About her husband's frequent lovers, Lady Diana once said, They were the flowers, but I was the tree. Duff Cooper does have an impressive political career, and this will keep the couple at the center of very powerful circles with access to glamorous and wealthy people. Duff Cooper was a member of Parliament, the First Lord of the Admiralty, Secretary of State for War, British Ambassador to France, and was made first Viscount Norwich in recognition to his service to England. Despite Lady Diana having no desire to marry Prince Edward, the Coopers do remain really good friends with Prince Edward, Edward VIII, 
and his wife, Wallace Simpson, throughout their lives. In fact, Diana and Duff Cooper were with Wallace and Edward on the 1936 yacht cruise that makes their relationship public and will put the abdication in motion. One notable lover of Duff Cooper was Gloria Guinness, one of Truman Capote's famous swans, about who Duff wrote, I don't think I have loved anybody physically so much or been so supremely satisfied. The love affair between Duff and Gloria Guinness primarily takes place on the French Riviera. Another notable affair that Duff had is with American socialite Susan Mary Alsup. That lasts until his death. They do have one son together. Some of his other serial philandering, oh goodness, Duff, was with Daisy Fellows, also Princess Ghislaine, also the French novelist Louise de Villemorin. The list of Duff's lovers would be long. And Diana's response, again, not jealousy, she'll instead become friends with her husband's lovers. Wallace Simpson, Duchess of Windsor, once quipped that, quote, she would never have an affair with Duff because it would mean having Diana around the house day and night being nice to her, unquote. Oh, friends, we are just going to keep on going and going. There's so much to this story. Dominic Dunn is all over this story. Not long ago, we did a Not Done Yet on Patreon of the auction of the Wallace Simpson jewels. Our man Nick reports on that. The Duke and Duchess of Windsor have a huge place in Maxine Elliott's Chateau de la Horizon. In 1936, the newly crowned Edward VIII decided that he would stay at Maxine's Chateau for an entire month. Those in the know knew that the still-married Wallace Simpson would be joining Eddie VIII there. When it leaked to the press, Edward and Wallace leave the chateau and embark on a yacht cruise with Diana and Duff Cooper instead. The press follows them and hear the relationship between the married Wallace Simpson and King Edward VIII was made public. Maxine can't live forever, though. However, her chateau's history does not stop when Maxine Elliott passes away in 1940. For a few years, the chateau was taken and occupied by Nazis. But in the mid-1940s, Chateau de la Horizon was purchased by Prince Ali Khan, who had been a frequent guest with Maxine. Prince Ali Khan kept the chateau in the center of society and press attention. When Prince Ali Khan marries Rita Hayworth in 1949, their wedding reception was held there. Floral arrangements with thousands of white roses and carnations of the couple's initials were floating in the pool during the reception. On the terrace were magnums of pink champagne flowing like waterfalls, where the Aga Khan was heard muttering, Too much caviar, Rita. Too much caviar. When Prince Ali Khan died in a car accident in 1960, his remains were temporarily interred in the garden of the chateau. His remains were transferred to a mausoleum in Syria in 1972. But come on, is any story complete on Dunn and Dunn without us mixing in a little bit of the Kennedy family? Dominic Dunn, as we know, writes about them a lot. I've got a few fun threads here for you. In 1958, when the marriage of John and Jackie Kennedy was in serious trouble, 
Jacqueline is threatening to divorce Jack, and the husband end up staying at the Chateau de l'Horizon, while both of their fathers, if you can believe it, discuss the future of their marriage. Lee, Jackie's sister, at this time Lee Canfield and her husband Michael, were renting a house in Antibes. Remember, Lee is Jacqueline's younger sister. And Jackie had gone to Antibes to stay with Lee and Michael for a little while. The marriage was at a breaking point because of Jack's frequent infidelities, number one, but on the other side because of Jacqueline's excessive spending habits. While in Antibes, Jacqueline had told her friends and family that she had no intention of returning to her husband. Jack Kennedy flies in from Sweden, where he had just been with his latest girl, Swedish Ganilla von Post. Joe Kennedy, Papa Joe, had been vacationing at a rented villa in nearby Cannes, Knowing that a divorce would ruin Jack's chances completely of becoming president, Joe Kennedy refused to even discuss the possibility. This is when Jacqueline's father, Black Jack Bouvier, flies in to stay with Joe Kennedy and the two dads get together to discuss what could be done to patch up the marriage. Wanting no part of their own marriage crisis negotiations, Jack and Jacqueline accepted Prince Ali Khan's invitation to take over the Churchill suite at the Chateau. They stay for several weeks and somehow agree on a plan to move forward and stay married. During their time at the Chateau, Ali Khan told them to feel free to invite their friends to stay with them. The Kennedys invited playwright and former politician William Douglas Holm and his wife Rachel Douglas Holm had been a boyfriend of Kick Kennedy, Jack's sister, and had also been friends with Jack since their days at Harvard. Later, Douglas Holm would recall his time at the Chateau de la Horizon as taking private planes for a day trip to Venice, dinners with the former wife of the Shah of Persia, and Gianni Agnelli, zooming in on his powerboat to take Jackie, Lee, and Rachel water skiing. Gianni Agnelli, oh my, his wife, Morella Agnelli, one of Truman Capote's famous swans as well. While staying at the Chateau, Prince Ali Khan arranges for the whole group of Kennedys and friends to dine with Aristotle Onassis aboard his super yacht, the Christina. Jack Kennedy had expressed a desire to meet his friend Winston Churchill, who at this time was 83 years old and spending a few days on Onassis's yacht. Jack wears a white tuxedo to this event, which, unbeknownst to him, was an outfit that Winston Churchill strongly disliked. Jacqueline Kennedy, on the other hand, was deeply tanned and wore a simple A-line dress, looking like the picture of elegance and, of course, speaking fluent French during dinner. Jacqueline Kennedy will charm both Winston Churchill and Aristotle Onassis. Jack Kennedy, as you can imagine, was a little disappointed by the lack of impression that he had made on Churchill. William Douglas Homer calls Jack complaining about his lack of impression. He complains to his wife, Jackie. And <laughs> Douglas Homer calls hearing Jacqueline say victoriously, I think he thought you were a waiter. Can you imagine? Oh, I love this stuff. Another recollection that Douglas Holm has 
is hearing a conversation between Michael Canfield and Jack Kennedy, where Michael Canfield says to Jack, I just can't understand why you want to be president. And JFK responds, well, Mike, I guess it's just about the only thing I can do. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. A few more fun little spider webs in our Chateau episode this week. Let's talk about the Chateau de la Horizon and Elizabeth Taylor. In 1959, it is the infamous beauty herself, Elizabeth Taylor. She's staying at the Chateau, recovering from the death of her husband, Mike Todd. Mike Todd's death is a flat-out tragedy. Y'all don't forget that Dominic Dunn's last movie production was with Elizabeth Taylor in Ash Wednesday. This is 1973, and it all goes downhill for our man Nick after that. Well, until his rise again. Backing up the bus a few years here, 1959. Elizabeth Taylor had flown into Paris for a shopping trip when she runs into Eddie Fisher, who at the time was married to Debbie Reynolds. This is here where... Elizabeth and Eddie fall in love. Some people say they fell in love. I really think they are both dealing with their mutual grief and loss over Mike Todd. Elizabeth adored Mike Todd and Eddie Fisher looked up to Mike Todd like a father, like a brother. Eddie and Elizabeth do really find something in this connection. So I say the two fell in love, but they did something. But when the press hears about Eddie Fisher filing for divorce, Eddie and Elizabeth cannot escape the press. So for a little bit of a reprieve from the spotlight, Eddie and Elizabeth fly to Cannes. They become virtual captives here at the Carlton Hotel when the paparazzi follows them. Prince Ali Khan and his fiancée, Bettina Graziani, were walking by the Carlton one day, when they see the paparazzi harassing the couple. Here, Ali Khan extends an invitation for Elizabeth and Eddie to come and get some peace and privacy at the chateau. Here, Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher hightail it out of can and wait out the scandalous media storm shielded behind the chateau's gates. Another fun through line here with some future consequences into our continuing investigation. While the Chateau was doubtless in the setting for many a love triangle, one of the more famous and albeit trashy ones was the love triangle between Prince Ali Khan, Rita Hayworth, and Pamela Churchill. Prince Ali Khan, though, knows who to call to fix the situation, and this is going to be renowned Riviera Heartbreaker. Gianni Agnelli. See, Pamela was a frequent house guest at the Chateau, and she got along famously with the Aga Khan. Pamela Churchill had been married to Randolph Churchill. By this time of the love triangle, they had divorced, and many of Pamela's wartime romances were also in her past. Prince Ali and Pamela had met back in 1947 at the Royal Ascot, 
when she went with her good friend, Kick Kennedy. Prince Ali Khan and Pamela get along well and they're attracted to each other, so it is not long before Prince Ali begins inviting Pamela to stay at his Riviera Chateau. Pamela was unbothered that Prince Ali also still happened to be married. Both of Pamela's biographies talk about her fascination and addiction to Prince Ali Khan's quote-unquote prolonged lovemaking. Prince Ali's biographers explain that when he went to Cairo as a teenager, he underwent sexual teaching by a Persian Hakim to learn how to delay his sexual climax almost indefinitely. This sexual technique supposedly originated in India, land of the Karma Sutra. During 1947 and 1948, Pamela was the almost exclusive female guest of the prince. This goes on for a little while. In May of 1948, Kit Kennedy and her fiancé, Peter Fitzwilliam, were staying at the chateau with Pamela and Prince Ali. Kick had recently flown to America to tell her Kennedy family about her engagement and wish to marry. Kick had confided in her friend Pamela that the discussion had not gone well because her parents, Rose and Joe, were refusing to give their blessing to the wedding. Peter Fitzwilliam was a Protestant. That was only primarily problem number one, Second problem was that Peter Fitzwilliam was already married. Rose Kennedy is big mad, big upset. She threatens to completely disown Kick if she goes through with this marriage to Peter. Kick's father, Joe Kennedy, wasn't happy either, but he privately agreed to try to get a papal dispensation from the Vatican for the marriage. The couple were leaving for Paris to meet Joe Kennedy to discuss this plan. Then they would be headed to Cannes. Kick invites Pamela to go with them, but Pamela can't. She had some prior commitments. Pamela Churchill will drive Kick Kennedy and Peter Fitzwilliam to the airport and watch their chartered de Havilland Dove take off. Later, Pamela would hear the tragic news that Kick and Peter had flown into the side of a mountain during a thunderstorm. They had both been killed instantly. We are going to get into a little bit more about Kit Kennedy's story next week. In addition to a little bit more about the Kennedys, it really does all connect. Pamela, though, distraught by the loss of her good friend, decides to stay at the Chateau de la Horizon longer than expected, and she and Prince Ali Khan do grow closer. Pamela will act and honestly was accepted as the unofficial hostess of the Chateau for quite some time. Pamela runs the household, and to be fair, was very good at it. Prince Ali Khan appreciated Pamela's attention to detail and her stylish flair. Pamela, though, would soon be replaced by a newly divorced Rita Hayworth. Surprisingly, though, here Pamela doesn't take the news too hard, especially when she heard that she was welcome to stay at the Chateau, while Prince Ali Khan and Rita Hayworth were off falling in love. So Prince Ali Khan had reportedly been obsessed with Rita Hayworth movies, and now Rita is at the height of her fame with the newly released Gilda. After taking Rita on a date to a bullfight, where she was cheered on by crowds and expertly danced the flamenco, 
Prince Ali Khan whispered in his chauffeur's ear, I'm getting a divorce. I'm going to marry Rita. Meanwhile, Prince Ali Khan had left Pamela in charge of the chateau, where she had honestly set up a nice little routine for herself. She would have breakfast and then go into town to visit the hairdresser or shop or meet a friend for lunch. Then she'd come back and swim or relax on the beach. One afternoon, while Pamela was sunbathing, she heard the engine of a motorboat switch off and realized someone had just parked at the chateau's jetty. Pamela looks up and sees, quote, the most beautiful man she'd ever seen, unquote, emerge from the steps. This tall, muscular, tanned man with dark curly hair walked up to Pamela and introduced himself as Giovanni Agnelli, but said, call me Gianni. These two were instantly attracted to each other. They would end up spending the next five years together. Pamela would fall deeply in love with Agnelli. The two acted as a married couple and traveled together. Pamela was put in charge of all of his homes, which she redecorated and entertained in. Pamela even converted to Catholicism with the fervent hope in her heart that Gianni would marry her. In the end, that would not be the case because Gianni was not willing to marry a divorced woman. He would instead marry Catholic Italian virgin, who we would come to know as Morella Agnelli. But again, that's another story for a coming day. What happens to the chateau, friends? In 1979, the heir to the Saudi throne, future King Fahd, purchased the Chateau de la Horizon. King Fahd makes significant changes and additions to the chateau, and it looks very different than it used to in Maxine's day. It is no longer the classically understated villa that our girl Maxine had built. The Saudi royal family has made it into something that maybe looks a little bit more like a monstrosity than its original hotel. The chateau is no longer a gathering place for the glamorous and wealthy set, but the allure of its history remains as tends to the magical aura of locations in our past. Holy cats, this episode was a nice bit of everything into the thread of our investigation we're going to be coming back next weekend for you, where we're going to be picking up with one of the pieces in this story as we continue our nothing is linear, but everything sure is connected thread. Friends, thank you so much for spending your time with me today and for listening, for your kind reviews, for your sweet emails, for supporting the podcast on Patreon. I can't tell you how much I cherish and appreciate every single one of you. Until we meet again, my friend, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.